The following program contains disturbing content that may be in settings and situations similar to your own. Discretion is advised. America's heartland, flyover country, shaking dice at the cafe for morning coffee, crop prices and rainfall, a day's work for a day's pay, business conducted on a handshake, where a man is as good as his word, church socials and town team baseball. But as the sun sets on this piece of Americana, there is no immunity from the darkness. There are things dare not spoken, and thoughts recessed in the corner of a man's mind, masked by the roar of a summer thunderstorm, hidden in the silence of winter snow, yet peering from the darkness in the shadows of the Midwest. The Texas Department of Corrections Connolly Unit. Named for Texas Governor John Connolly, the maximum security unit houses a little better than 2,200 inmates. This is what former Minnesota State Trooper Robert Nelson considers home. On this episode, we'll go beyond the gates and bars and hear from Robert Nelson from the inside. You're listening to Shadows of the Midwest, Season 1, Secrets of County Ditch Number 5, Episode 6, From the Inside. And welcome to Shadows of the Midwest, Episode 6, From the Inside. Before we get started, I wanted to take you back to Episode 5 for a moment. If you recall, I had some confusion about the directions Robert Nelson gave to the crime scene. I did ask if any of you had tried to follow and to reach out with your results. Two of you stepped up to the plate, uh, Ron H., a Minnesotan uh, snowbirding in Arizona, and Steve K., a Minnesota transplant in Montana. I want to thank you both for taking the time to respond and the interest to actually do the research. Both brought us to different locations, and both had a logic to the results. One of the problems, and I believe this stems back to Nelson's directions, is both locations were west of where the body was recovered. The problem with that is is that the water in the drainage ditch ran east to west, meaning the body would have had to gone upstream uh, from the alleged crime scene. And now with keeping issues like that in mind, let's move forward with today's episode. After spending some months going through the 900-plus pages of this case file and coupled with researching outside sources, I had questions about the veracity of Nelson's murder confession. And with that being said, I never really examined the allegations of child molesting. And honestly, I find those portions of the file extremely disturbing, and in all of this, I never had a real reason to question those accusations. I thought that Nelson's motivation in confessing to the murder was the chance to serve his prison time in Minnesota. I mean, think about it. Would you rather serve life in prison as a child molester in Texas or a murderer in Minnesota? About a year and a half ago, I felt it was time to reach out to Robert Nelson. Uh, What would he have to say some 30 years later? 
I initially sent Nelson a couple of emails and received no response. I was disappointed but not willing to give up. I called the prison to see if Nelson might have an attorney on file who I might be able to approach him through. Uh, after several unsuccessful phone calls to people throughout the prison system, I was connected with a member of the family liaison office. It was through her that I finally learned inmates in this particular unit could receive emails, which staff would print off daily for them, but they could only reply by snail mail. I sent one more email to Nelson, this time including my address, uh, for a response. Around a week later, I received a response. His letter contained a rather cryptic fable about emptying a pillowcase from a mountain and uh, then having to pick up the feathers. And it ended basically telling me to screw myself and never make contact with him again. With the time I had invested, I was not going to give up that easily. Uh, my second letter relayed my understanding and his frustration. And I included some of the information I knew about uh, what had happened to him. And I told him I would honor his wishes of no further contact. Over a series of letters after, he began to open up and I eventually asked him to participate in a phone interview. He declined, stating that due to hearing loss, it is difficult for him to talk on the telephone. And as an alternative, I offered to provide him with a series of questions to address or to prepare a statement uh, in his own words to tell his own story. He chose the latter. The following is a statement he sent me, and to give him his own voice, it's being read by friend of the show and musician, Matt Hutchinson. I'm going to add a little addendum here. As I was recording this, uh, it occurred to me that I kind of wanted to add this for transparency transparency, and clarification. Uh, during the time that I was uh, corresponding with Nelson, I had also been uh, t speaking with a gentleman by the name of Kent McGowan. Uh, Kent uh, served right around 20 years in a Texas prison. He was a, a police officer in the Houston area prior to that. In 1991, he was involved in a fatal shooting during a execution of a search warrant. And uh, approximately 10 years later, he was uh, convicted of murder in that case. We're going to uh, speak with Kent in the near future here. Uh, after I... Uh, while I was speaking with Kent, I described our uh, the story of uh, the hitchhiker and Robert Nelson. And shortly after we got off the phone, I received a message from him. Uh, Kent is currently living on a ranch assisting a disabled vet uh, with some of the duties uh, that come along with uh, running a ranch. And Kent shared this uh, story of Robert Nelson uh, with the gentleman who owns the ranch that he lives on. And it turns out that this gentleman uh, occupied a cell next to Robert Nelson for 20 years, and they happened to be uh, rather good buddies uh, during those 20 years. I went back and disclosed this to Nelson later on and uh, shared uh, addresses uh, for them to reach out to each other. And Nelson felt that uh, 
this was more than a coincidence and that this was some kind of uh, fate or providential uh, interjection. And uh, uh, he felt that that was something that uh, made him trust me more, that there was something more than coincidence in that event. So I just wanted to interject that part of it. You can take that for whatever it's worth. It is often said that truth is stranger than fiction. I can attest to that fact. My name is Bob Nelson, officially Robert, and I want to share my story with you. Although it may seem unbelievable at times, it is a true story, sad yet true. I have had many years now to examine the truth behind this story, yet it doesn't get any easier to explain. In 1983, I began to realize that I needed God in my life. That is, not salvation, but rather it was the Spirit of God drawing me. I was a real sorry human being, and I was beginning to realize it. Before we go any further, let me answer any questions that eventually come up in your mind. How can a reasonably intelligent person fall for such a load of deception and get enmeshed in a cult? Nobody says, hmm, I think I'll go join a cult today. The best analogy that I can think of would be like a set of steps going down into a dark cellar. One step down and you don't notice anything. Your vision becomes accustomed to this. Another step down and the same thing. Eventually you're surrounded by darkness. The darkness has become normal to you. Please keep this example in your mind as the story progresses downward. This is how it happened. Susan and I began attending a neighborhood Bible study group in our desire to include God in our lives, where we were getting more of what we were seeking. I had no spiritual background, only nominal, in name only, Christianity, never owned or read a Bible, never prayed, never gave it any thought except to claim Christianity rather than some other form of religious label. Susan met Kathy Bernier at a grocery store, and we were invited to their little home church meetings, which we did attend. After a time, we were encouraged by Ron Bernier to remove ourselves from any other religious involvement and join his group. This was the first step down to isolate us. I finally felt that I was getting the answers to my need for God in my life, and that I was a part of something bigger. Eventually, the ministry moved to Texas, and since I'd felt a part of something bigger, I turned in my retirement papers, and we auctioned most of our possessions and moved also to Texas, leaving behind family, friends, and career. The quote-unquote ministry also left behind a bad reputation and a bunch of debts. Another step down. I had cashed in my retirement account and supported the ministry heavily to the detriment of my own family. But eventually we ran out of money. Then I had to get a job and ended up working nights at a convenience store. Everyone who was able had a job to support the ministry. Everyone but Ron Bernier, who was deemed too spiritually important to have a working job. 
In three and a half years, we gave approximately $55,000 to the ministry, including a lot of cash, vehicles, and property. We ended up living in a small, unfinished shack with a tarp for a roof with another married couple, along with my wife, three kids, and myself, with no indoor plumbing. One more step down. Because of anger and frustration issues that I had that had worsened because of our circumstances and growing depression, Bernier counseled Susan and I to separate, which is totally in conflict with Scripture, what God hath joined together let no man put asunder. This happened twice, the second time as the ministry was about to send a small team to Mexico. I was told to go on that trip to serve only as someone to haul baggage. Soon after arriving in Mexico, I received a letter from Susan stating that our oldest son had told Ron Bernier that I had molested him for years. I cried a puddle of tears on the floor and said, I did not do that. Mark Messley told me and the group gathered that Ron had discerned that it was true. Of course, to everyone in this cult, that made it true. I was told not to return to Texas with the ministry, which left Mexico a few days later. I was abandoned, just me and God, which turned out to be a blessing. I spent eight months fasting and praying and digging deeply into my life and then repenting from that load of sin in my life as it came to mind. But no memories of the lie came to me, although I begged God repeatedly. I had been told to confess so I could repent, to imagine those memories, because unrepented sin would lead to hell. Finally, God showed me that I had a divided heart, wanting God while also wanting whatever the world had to offer. When I admitted that in my heart and asked Jesus to take my whole heart, that was the point of my salvation. I would do nearly anything to be able to forget the man I was, the sins of my past life, but I have found that God is the only one capable of purposely forgetting what we confess. The hardest person to forgive in my life was me. Eventually, I felt I was supposed to return to Texas to deal with this mess somehow. On January 1, 1988, I returned to Texas and spent several days hitchhiking back to Tyler. As I walked from the interstate on the highway to Tyler, the last leg of my journey, Ron Bernier picked me up and took me to a ministry residence. He shared a scripture with me as we drove, John chapter 11 verses 43 and 44. And when he thus had spoken, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Ron said it was for me. I understood the significance that I was coming forth from death as a newborn man, but I was still bound by several issues. It was a long time later that I saw the remainder of that verse. Jesus said, Loose him and let him go. That didn't happen. Instead, Ron spent a couple of days on the phone to CPS and the Sheriff's Department in order for me to be turned in for my quote-unquote crimes. The last words spoken to me by Vince Ganucci as he let me out at the Sheriff's Office were, If they do not keep you, you are lost, meaning that I had to convince their investigator. My written statement to Melody McCabe was full of words like, 
dreamlike and imagined and fuzzy, hazy, to try to describe my so-called memories. Later, at trial, all those words have been crossed out with a black magic marker, my first taste of Texas justice. While in the county jail, I remained in contact with Bernier. I had no one else in my life. Eventually, Susan and I had a brief reconciliation while she was away from Bernier's influence, but Ron was my main contact point. I mentioned to Ron about an unclear dream I had and told him about the hitchhiker in Minnesota from 1980. He was silent for a moment, then said, Yes, you did that. Here was another thing that I had no memory of, and it added to my confusion and depression. Mentally and emotionally, I added that to the rest of this mess. One more step. I would like to take a moment to try to describe my confused mindset at that time because it's crucial to whether or not you believe me. I was under tremendous duress from Sue and the remaining influence of Bernier. I still had hope of some kind of relationship with my wife and kids, so I needed to confess. I was seriously depressed and at the very lowest point in my life. Remember my description of the steps down into that dark cellar. This was the darkest and most hopeless point of my entire life and lasted for months all the way through my time back in Minnesota. I was honestly searching for memories in order that I could seriously repent, but the memories were not there. I was in the dark in that cellar, and although I was truly saved, I was overwhelmed with depression and duress. I would have confessed to nearly anything in order to find peace and remove the emotional burdens. At my trial in Texas for the sexual assault charge, the lie that Ron had discerned to be true, despite greatly conflicting testimony, I was found guilty. Ron told Susan, he must be guilty or God would not have allowed that. I was devastated. Ron had told me that he had interceded in two similar cases in Minnesota and the men had received 18 month to two year sentences before being reunited with their families. I had some expectation of the same. I received a life sentence in Texas, my second taste of Texas justice. In prison I continued to fast and pray and search my heart and one day February 20th 1989 the Lord impressed on my heart to look at 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 verse 12 and I went to look it up please remember I had no spiritual background and had not even read very much of the Bible yet this is what that verse says for if there be first a willing mind it is accepted according to that a man hath and not according to that he hath not Although it is one verse out of context, it was in perfect context with what I had been praying and agonizing about for months and months regarding those missing memories. When the light of that verse shined into my heart that day, it was a foretaste of what was to come, but not yet. In early 1989, I was returned to Minnesota to answer for the death of the hitchhiker. I was interviewed several times by several different authorities. Bernier's influence followed me in the form of phone calls from Susan urging me to confess or I was going to hell. 
This was reinforced several times as I tried to imagine memories that simply were not there. One of the sheriff's deputies, Jerry Cabe, interviewed me alone more than once and asked me leading questions about the hitchhiker. Do you remember pulling out her fingernails or do you remember she was bald? These things were not known to the public and are called holdback questions and never should have been asked that way. It is poor investigative procedure. Although I had no memory of these facts, I tried to answer in the affirmative to make my imagined memories fit the facts of the case. My answers, although they were improbable explanations, more than anything convinced the authorities of my guilt. After enduring the trial in Texas, I did not want to go through all of that again. I pled guilty to reduce charges because I had cooperated with the authorities. I was then returned to Texas, where I existed in a sort of disillusioned hopefulness, still trying to recover the repressed memories that didn't really exist. But I was no longer under Bernier's influence, nor the duress imposed by association with their cult religion. I had no more contact with them after returning to Texas, and I was instead surrounded with good, solid Christian brothers. I began my steps back up out of that dark depression and grew in knowledge and understanding of God's ways. One of these good brothers told me that he would give anything to be able to forget his past life before his salvation. I recognized the truth of that because I had no problem remembering all the other failings and sins of my whole life, those many sins that I sincerely repented of to bring about my salvation. This fact, together with the scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12 that had touched my heart months before, together with other things brought to my attention during that same time, all allowed me to know the fact that I had not been involved in that hitchhiker's death nor had I committed the offense for which I was in prison in Texas. It had taken me nearly three years to fight my way back out of that dark place and out from under Bernier's deceptive influence, one step at a time. There were no memories to recover and confess and repent of because the assault of my son never even occurred. I believe the entire scenario was designed to get rid of me, and my son went along with it because I was a lousy father, and he had plenty of reason to see me gone. The hitchhiker was a true crime, but I had absolutely nothing to do with it. At the lowest point in my life, Ron Bernier deceived and manipulated me and everyone by informing us that God told him it was all true. This preyed on my emotional weakness within the quote-unquote ministry for anyone to question what Ron said was viewed and labeled as rebellion. I did not molest my son. I did not kill that hitchhiker. I did not protect my family from the ravishes of this man, Ron Bernier. This manipulation eventually led Vince Ganucci, Ron's right-hand man, taking my wife as his own and inducing her to give up our two sons to adoption and foster care. They kept our daughter. Years later, they put her out on the street for being disobedient and rebellious by their warped definition when she refused to marry another of Ron's right-hand men who was 35 years old. She was just 17 at that time. As you might expect, I have many regrets in my life that I was the kind of man, father, and husband that would bring all this upon myself and affect many people. 
The hitchhiker was eventually identified by DNA, which did not exist in 1980. Somewhere out there is a man who is actually responsible for her death, and perhaps he may be found even after all these years have passed. For over 34 years, I've lived and worked on the WIN unit. The men and women, officers and inmates, employees and visitors have known me as a solid Christian, the real deal, honest and dependable, offering scripture and encouragement whenever I could. This is the new creation that the scripture talks about. People who see you literally 24-7 cannot be fooled for very long. I have only touched on a few high points, or more accurately, low points. Let me finish on some high points. There are several hard-earned and costly lessons here. Beware of any group that violates scriptural principles with rules and decrees of their own making. Beware of any person who proclaims that God told them anything that does not align with scripture. God always verifies his word. Learn the scriptures, search the scriptures, and test the scriptures to make sure they align with scripture. I did not know enough at that time uh, to do that. Now I do. Winston Churchill once said, The truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. I was surprised in November 1998 when I got a letter from Bernier's niece, who had also escaped the hold that Bernier had on his group. In her letter, she described many ungodly things that caused her to leave that group. One included her knowledge that Ron had brainwashed me and had set me up on the whole thing. She apologized for any part she may have played. She also said that Ron had started to use the exact same tactics on another man and his daughter, who were part of the group. Fortunately, that man did recognize the same lie that was used on me, and he quickly returned to Minnesota before any action. This was another step upward out of darkness, as her letter confirmed. I was never allowed to live the proof of my salvation after I returned from Mexico, but I suspect that I would have become a spiritual threat to Bernier. Perhaps he could see that. What he could not and did not see were the things that he said that God had showed him about me. The scripture describes him as a quote-unquote hireling in Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 1 through 4 and a false prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 and chapter 18 verses 21 and 22. Someday we will all answer to God for our actions. And there it is, as Churchill said, the truth. You can attack it, you can deride it, but there it is. An incomplete but true story. I don't expect everyone to believe it, most especially seeing the divisiveness at work today in the world. Thankfully, my approval is not in the eyes of mankind, and I have accepted that. I have purposely left this one final fact until last. In March 1995, my son wrote to me unexpectedly. He wanted to reestablish a relationship. In October 1995, he sent me a handwritten statement that denied that I had ever molested him, that he had been brainwashed by Bernier and then discarded, and that he hoped his statement would bring me justice for being wrongly convicted. At the time, I was working on a legal writ of actual innocence,
as my very last legal recourse. I added his letter in hope that it would open up my case for re-examination. It was rejected by the court without review. My final taste of Texas justice. Signed, Robert L. Nelson. And just a reminder that Nelson's Minnesota sentence for murder and child abuse was completed in around 2006. Uh, Right now, I just wanted to offer some clarification to Nelson's statement. Nelson did spend 34 years in the win unit of the Texas Department of Corrections, and he was recently transferred to Connolly with uh, no real reason given. Uh, Shortly after his imprisonment, Nelson's wife, Susan, did divorce him and in short order married into the Light Ministries pastor Vince Ginucci. The couple's two sons were transferred to foster care in Minnesota, and a daughter Megan remained with Susan and Ginucci. At some point in 1997, Megan was kicked out of the home after refusing to marry an older member of the church. On November 21st of 1997, Megan was killed in a car accident on her way to work near Rock Hill, South Carolina. Uh, When Susan Gannucci was notified of her daughter's death, York County Coroner Doug McCowan uh, stated that she refused to accept responsibility for her daughter's body. Outraged, uh, Megan's friends and co-workers raised close to $10,000 to give Megan a burial and a marker. Susan Ganucci later demanded payment from a life insurance policy Megan had uh, through her employer, and a judge eventually divided that insurance benefit between Ganucci and Robert Nelson. Nelson mentioned letters from uh, Reverend Bernier's niece. If you, if you recall, it was uh, his niece that Robert's son disclosed the molestation allegations to. I do have copies of these letters, and I will post them on uh, one of our social media outlets after I've had a chance to redact some of the names. And as of this recording, I have been unable to make contact with her. I'll leave you today with the letter from Nelson's son. I did reach out to him, but he declined to comment. Nelson's next parole hearing is scheduled for March 2024. And to note that uh, in uh, Nelson's statement, uh, he did uh, have a date incorrect on here. A letter is dated 1016 of 98 rather than 95. To whom it may concern, I am writing this to state that Robert Nelson is in prison under a false accusation. He did not commit the crime he was convicted of. I am his eldest son, the person who was supposedly abused. It's a long story, but I was under a lot of pressure and influence by a man that wanted my father out of the picture. I was used as a tool for this purpose and then cast aside after the deed was done. I am more than willing to testify to this, in fact, even take a lie detector test. I want to see this deed corrected and my father released from a sentence that he does not deserve. If this is at all possible, please contact me or my grandmother as soon as possible to correct the very grave error in justice. 
And thank you for listening to Shadows of the Midwest. I encourage you to reach out to us on our Facebook page and YouTube channel, the same name. Or reach us through email at shadowsinthemidwest at gmail.com. Shadows of the Midwest is a production of Just Past Nowhere Productions, LLC, 2024. Music provided by Matt Hutchinson and the Hutchinson Effect. Please make sure to like and follow Shadows of the Midwest on your favorite podcast platform and to share it with a friend. Oh, 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 o